with the latest brutal atrocities perpetrated in Israel. Horrific sights, descriptions of things that most of us couldn't even imagine. I'm not going to go into any graphic detail. The word absolute evil has come up many times. This is total evil. Not just killing, but the humiliation and the form of doing something with such cruelty and sadism. So it brings us to the big question about is there absolute good and evil? Or, as some like to argue, there's always two sides to a story. Everything is relative. Some even say there is no such thing as good and evil. It's all subjective. So please join me in this very, very important conversation. Is there absolute good and evil? And of course, the implications and what we do about it. Hi, this is Simon Jacobson, and we'll be speaking about is there absolute good and evil? This program is dedicated by Gloria Benvenista Wortlieb in memory of Lena, Ray, Rose, Dorothy, and Miriam Schreiber, and Paul Herman and Aaron Goodman. And may it also be in the merit of all our brothers and sisters, innocent men, women, and children. May they be protected in Israel and all over the world, but especially there. So, in the midst of bloodshed, midst of a war, where people have been killed, innocent people have been killed, the most horrific ways, and it continues to wage and rage, so we don't want to become philosophical and suddenly step back and let's talk about good and evil. However, you do hear the words coming out from many people's mouths, especially those that witnessed the horrific and brutal and sadistic, and I don't even have all the adjectives needed here, atrocities perpetrated on babies, on toddlers, on innocent men and women, completely unprovoked. So when you see things like that, that concept, an idea of absolute evil comes into our minds. Is this absolute evil? That language, of course, was used during World War II when we saw the Nazis perpetrated. So there are times that things happen in our lives and God bless us all that it should be very rare or not at all. But when it does happen, it compels us to actually look at it in very crystallized terms. You know, when things are comfortable, are living in peace, and please God, that should always be the case, you're not forced to ask that question. In my lifetime, I've seen, heard about wars. I've seen pictures of them. But 
not, not on my doorstep. But when you see it and you hear about it, and especially people you know, and the truth is anywhere in the world, we see that it's not just about a war over some territory, but there's also hatred that turns into the most disgusting and obscene type of behavior. You're forced to ask that question. So there are those that argue, and I'm only bringing it to play devil's advocate, even though we don't believe in the devil, but you get the idea. Some that say, I remember once giving a class, someone I was saying about the right or wrong, choosing the good path, not a bad path, not a selfish path, and someone said, there's no such thing as evil. And he was ready to debate it all night. And I realized I'm not going to get engaged in some type of semantic, philosophical, abstract debate. There's no evil, he said. It's only in the eyes of the beholder. What one person calls evil, another person calls good. Started giving me examples. For example, when the predator kills the prey in the wild. Is that evil? Is that bad? That's part of the natural process. Which really gets down to the question, is there such a thing as free will? You know, maybe all of us are programmed and wired. And therefore, just as things go through a certain evolution, some things die. And then there's a, a new generation that comes in this place. So sometimes there are those, survival of the fittest, that will kill out the weaker ones, and the fittest will survive. This is the case he was trying to make. But even if you don't have a purely philosophical argument against it, which there is, and I'll talk about it, there's something wrong when you hear that. Something rubs us wrong. And that's what I try to communicate with him and with many others that have this type of discussion. I try to give a picture. I said, take a, a newborn child. The newborn child has not done anything to anyone. And the Nazis smashed that newborn child's head in the wall in front of its mother. Or something similar. Would that be called evil? Or that you'd say, well, it's relative. It's a perspective. Yeah, I understand you can take the Nazis' perspective and say... The Jews are all toxic. They're vermin. I'm just using, I, I abhor using these words. And just like you kill a cockroach. And that's what the propaganda taught. The propaganda taught. But as we look at it, I understand that's the Nazi's perspective. That's part of the evil, obviously. But as we look at it objectively from the outside, can we say there are really two cases to be made here? There's two sides? And let's sit down and discuss it? Because remember, it's not the act, it's also the person. There are people that can stoop to that level. They can, and they can convince themselves of anything. People have done the most horrible things. And when a father violates a child in the most worst possible way, again, I'm not going to go into graphic detail, do you think he's hurting the child? No, in his distorted, crazy, bizarre mind, Again, I don't have the adjectives for it. He doesn't think it's so bad. But obviously, because he's subjective, but, that, but he's perpetrating an evil act, and as doing so, he's an evil person while he does it. We're not getting now whether we fundamentally, in essence of the person, is an evil or good thing. I'll talk about that at the end of this program. We're talking now that behavior at this point. <clears throat> So yes, if you take a certain attitude 
as I mentioned, survival of the fittest, that there are no rules and no laws, and whoever is more powerful dominates. Then essentially you're dismissing and eliminating the, constant, constant, the concept of law and order, of justice. But that too, the cynic will say, that's only necessary, we need green lights and red lights, because we need to coexist. But there's nothing fundamentally, absolutely wrong by taking a red light. It just it creates a situation where people driving are going to unfortunately get into accidents. And there's therefore nothing wrong if somebody fundamentally murders someone. The only reason is because then everyone will murder everyone. So we need some, some system. But there's nothing absolute about it. Now there, is a, there are people who say that. And this is to me one of the reasons that to me a godless society that does not have some type of higher right and wrong is fundamentally problematic. This is not about a religious argument. And I think the founding fathers, not I think I know, understood that. That's why in the Declaration of Independence they wrote that we find these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. All people are created equal. And are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. Take away that foundation, then some people could say I'm more equal than others and therefore maybe not go to the extent of eliminating them. But ultimately can lead to that. And they use the word creator twice because it means subjecting ourselves, all of us are equal in those eyes. Now you could argue that that is simply a practical thing, but not necessarily fundamental, not necessarily absolute. So firstly, even if you want to argue that, you still believe, you know, we have a constitution and law and order, and there are people sitting in prison. So the argument would be the reason they're in prison is because it's the only deterrent, because you have to keep them away from harming others, and we can't just live in a jungle. So even if you say it's not absolute, we all feel there is an absolute need for such enforcement, law enforcement. But I'll go a step further. It really comes down to how we see the human being. If we're really evolved bacteria, so how many bacteria are killed every moment, when, every moment or when you wake up in the morning? They say, I don't know, how many bacteria just are killed? We don't even know about it. So if we're evolved bacteria, so life is negligible, it has no true value or dignity. So if that's the case, yeah, of course. Then philosophically you could argue there's no such thing as absolute good and evil. It comes down to survival. And survival of the fittest is the most important rule. The selfish gene, in Richard Dawkins' words from his classic book. But if you take a different perspective, that the human being was created in the divine image, and we, and we have a life of purpose and meaning, and part of that purpose and meaning is that you have free will to choose between right and wrong. And then there is absolute right and wrong. And whether you want to call it God, or you want to call it the rule of law, but there's a statement that says existence has right and wrong. There are things that are healthy, there are things that are unhealthy. You eat these foods, it will nourish and sustain you. You eat other toxic foods, they will hurt you, they can kill you. That is absolute right and wrong, or good and evil. Obviously, you want, to, you want to play the philosophical game, mind games. You could say, well, who says dying is a bad thing? You ate something wrong, and a person got sick and died, God forbid. Who says that? I don't want to go in there. If you're ready going to that direction, I mean, then you could just say everything is one big illusion, 
and there's no proof for anything. That's why I stay away, and I want to stay away, especially when we're talking about it, when there are innocent people who have just died, the graves are still, haven't been even found, they haven't yet been even buried. The blood is still, is still warm. But even in general, I don't want to talk the philosophy of it, because you can go into, it, the arguments themselves can become obscene. So let's speak about it more in the context of a, a perspective on life. So when it comes to these things, I always gravitate. I'm not looking for mathematical and scientific proof one way or the other. I don't know if you could find that. Because you could always argue it both ways. But there's experiential proof. What makes the human being work better? You'll say, is that absolute? For me, that's absolute. And as such, that would be good and evil in the translation of right and wrong. What is healthy for the person? Someone's going to argue that eating something that is toxic, that ultimately causes death, is not bad because you just that's the consequence of, ba- of that behavior. That's not where I want to go. What is right and what is wrong is in context of what works. So when you buy a machine, a computer, and they tell you, don't put it into water, or don't let liquid spill on it, or other things, how to take care of it, because if you do it, you'll destroy the machine. To me, that's not, I'm not going to say that's absolute, because all it is is a machine. But we all accept the idea that there are rules. This makes it work, and this does not make it work. So it's not just about coexistence, that there's something of fundamental, you can say DNA, a fundamental aspect of existence itself, is that there are right things and there are wrong things. Now, if you bring God into the picture, and I am absolutely doing that, and a healthy God, I'm not talking about a God, a distorted version of a God, a stereotype, stereotypical God, then, of course, there are paths that we were given. In the words of the Bible, I, give, I, I behold, here are two paths, the path of life and the path of death. The right path, the bad path, the, the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. And if you think about it, not only does it make sense, all of life takes on a different shape and form. Because imagine for a moment a world where everything is relative. So then you can do anything. Remember, we're subjective beings. We have our self-interest. You can betray someone. You can violate. You can, you, you can do the worst possible things and say, I had a reason. And justify it. The idea that there are guidelines and expectations, I love you and you love me, says there's expectations. You don't do certain things to a person you love. You don't hurt the one you love and they don't hurt you. We make mistakes and we acknowledge them, but we don't justify and say, hey, that's not really wrong. You, only, you see it as wrong. That's what that classic, the classic, uh, say narcissist, the classic subjective argument is, I'll apologize to you because you feel you've been wronged. Essentially saying, I don't feel I did anything wrong. That's just putting salt on the wounds. That's just adding fuel to the fire. Insult to injury. But they say adding insult to injury. But that's what subjective people will do. So let's just be honest. I know someone will say, who says honesty is absolute? Honesty is also relative. Okay, you see where we go down the rabbit hole once you go there. The Pandora's box. Can of worms, whatever you want to call it. 
The point being is, honest means an objective honesty. Not just how you see it, what's good for your interests. Let's ask somebody else. So then you'll say, one second, so it's up to consensus? You know, if the majority of the world felt that we should kill all the Jews during the Holocaust, God forbid, then makes it right? I didn't say consensus. It's not about asking people, because everybody can be subjective. And unfortunately, the Jews have been, unfortunately, the victim of such subjectivity over the years. So it's not consensus. It's about asking someone that doesn't have any bias. Because as I said, everything can be justified. No, there's some things that are absolutely wrong. That doesn't mean that you have a grievance, you don't have a grievance. We're not invalidating a person's grievances. But there's ways how to deal with it. And there's certain lines you don't cross. Now, if you're listening to this and say you disagree with what I just said, I don't really have it what to say. Because there are, there are axioms. Every discussion has to begin with certain givens. And that's a given. There are certain lines you don't cross. Anyone that says that you can cross any line under the right circumstances, what shall I tell you? Now, of course, let's, let's continue playing devil's advocate. Someone will say, one, one second here. If a person is dying from hunger, avalanche, and there's one weaker person there, and everyone's waiting for that person to die and then cannibalize him, they're saving their lives at the expense of others. So there's a line you wouldn't cross in normal times, but this is a particular time. So what are you saying? You're saying that because you're hungry, and because a group of people are hungry and they need to survive, they can do whatever they can. So how far do you go? You won't kill him. You just wait for him to die. So maybe someone else will say, since he's dying anyway, let's already kill him. Or you could say another, since there's a hundred of us and one person is not as important as others, let's kill him. You see where I'm going here? In other words, my point is, no, there's certain lines you don't cross. And one of them is that life is absolutely sacred. And even an individual life. Have people done horrendous things? Yes, but that doesn't make it right. See, the discussion here is not whether people can do it. The question is whether it's justifiable in the context of saying it's all relative. Unfortunately, we live in a time, and this is, I, I attribute it a lot to the Enlightenment and essentially when science began to replace, we'll call it religion and faith. So some of the religion and faith, as I've discussed many times, absolutely corrupt and deserve to be eliminated. But there are parts of it that are critical that science cannot replace, and that is the moral vision, the moral compass. Science is neutral. Nature is neutral. So part of that rebellion and revolution, which may have come for a good reason, it's like rebelling against a teacher who's corrupt, but that doesn't mean everything the teacher teaches is wrong. And we still need to come to terms because that battle still rages in many ways. Part of that became the idea of moral relativism. You know, the classic Bertrand Russell, some say it's urban legend, but it's a good story regardless. They once behaved very unethically with one of his students in the Cambridge and the university he taught. The ethics committee called him in and said, Professor Russell, Dr. Russell, whatever he was called, you teach ethics. You're a professor of ethics. How could you behave so unethically? And his response was, I also teach mathematics, and I'm not a triangle. Essentially, what you teach is not necessarily who you are, and who you are is not necessarily what you teach. 
Many scientists actually, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but I've heard scientists pride themselves in that objectivity. Don't look at me. Look at my observations. Look at my evaluations. Look at my experiments. Look at my theories. It's almost like the scientist is independent. No matter who I am, I could be a monster. But my research is good. A doctor could be smoking and tell you that smoking kills. That's my own personal, because moral, it's, a moral, it's my moral decision or a lack of decision, whatever. Maimonides, by contrast, writes, if you want to know who's a wise person, he says, don't look at his brilliance, at his theories, at his experiments, at his oratory skills. Look at his behavior. How does he walk? How does he talk? How does he deal with people? How does he eat? How does he sleep? How is his regular routines? In other words, wisdom is not just cerebral and detached. It affects your emotions. It affects your, you're a more loving person, a kinder person, a gentler person. Cognitive dissonance, dissonance is not what drives you. So when you think of it that way, so obviously we're all flawed people and we'll make mistakes, but don't justify it in the name of, I'm not a triangle. We understand you're not a triangle, but at least aspire to be one. And when you're not, I mean, in this case, aspire to be a moral person. And when you're not, acknowledge it, be honest. But don't let your subjectivity distort your mind, as the, the Bible says a tremendous statement, that bias, bribery, prejudice. Literally, the words are, it blinds the eyes of the wise and distorts the tongue, the mouth of the righteous. Even if the, you're wise and righteous, bias is bias. So it's the search for good and evil and recognizing there is a standard. There is a standard. But many have become invested in moral relativism. It makes you feel better. I can do whatever I want. Because nobody can tell me what to do. And those religious fanatics that are saying, God wants this, and if not, you're, 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 uh, you're going to be punished. And I don't believe in the punishment kind of this cause and effect, but that absolute picture of right and wrong, no, that was rejected. So I believe that's one of the things that contributes to the moral relativism where things become gray. So then when you see horrific acts, especially if you've been affected by propaganda, you could say, well, maybe I don't agree with exactly what they did, but you have to understand their grievances, it's years of generational trauma. I mean, the list goes on. If anyone has generational trauma, it's the Jewish people. 3,800 years of almost, almost continuous persecution. Did you hear it from anyone? After World War II, after Israel had began building a strong military, let's go back to Germany and bomb their cafes and bomb their homes and bomb their or everything for what they did to us? Look in history what, people, what empires did in vengeance when they gained power, what they did to their enemies who tormented them before. Why not? Because we turn another cheek? No. Because our revenge is the families we build, the future we build. Of course we don't forget, but we take our fury and anger and we channel it toward positive because our passion for good is greater than their passion for hate. So it's not dismissal, but it's recognizing and looking clearly in the eye. Here is right and here is wrong. When the Allies fought World War II, it was very clear to them 
that moral clarity. It's critical to have that clarity and vision. To know there is right and wrong. Doesn't mean that everybody who's living in, let's call enemy territory is an enemy? No, but there are real enemies. And there is real evil. And evil, unfortunately, there'll be collateral damage. That's what a war is about. Many innocent civilians were killed in World War II. No one's happy about that. How many people were killed when the, the, when the atom bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? But there was real evil in that part of the world, and there was no way to eradicate it. They wouldn't come to negotiate. They wouldn't surrender. They wouldn't, it would be a dragged-out thing that could have cost many more lives. So no one's justifying the killing what we're doing is eradicating a cancer. When you t- cancer, you do, and you do different interventions. You kill healthy cells with bad cells. There's no choice, unfortunately, whether it's through chemotherapy or other forms of uh, interventions when you're dealing with cancer, cancer. But there's something wrong. The, the cancerous cells are considered evil for the body. Can they be used elsewhere for good things? By all means. But when they ravage the body, they will they cause illness, and ultimately death. So there is right and wrong in the medical world for sure, even in the scientific world. It's when it came to the personal that people said moral relativism. It's a very convenient way of essentially fogging and clouding the topic that, that of saying, no, there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong. I remember speaking to different scientists, and I say, you know, I understand your argument that religious people of faith are subjective. They believe in a God, and that's what what defines their lives. But you're also subjective. Because you have self-interest. There's an interest to not have a God if you come to that conclusion. What's the interest? That you don't have to be responsible. And I remember people arguing with me, scientists, intelligent people. No, we're objective. Religious people are subjective. They're biased. Until I read Aldous Huxley, who was called himself a self-proclaimed agnostic, I believe. Another Huxley that coined the word agnostic. And he writes that before I give you my arguments or whatever, my belief system, my, my philosophies, I need you to know that I'm subjective. I don't want anyone telling me what to do, especially in the sexual arena. I'm not saying it's quite as eloquent as he phrased it. And that affects my conclusions. That affects my thinking. I respect that. At least he's giving a disclaimer of his own biases. That already is already clarity. If you said to me, I'm going to do something that that may not be right, but I have my biases, that's why I'm doing it. At least you're acknowledging. But then starting to change the reality and saying evil is good and good is evil. Read 1984. War is peace. Peace is war. There are no boundaries. There no Everything is everything. Everything has a side, everything has a justification, no. So in a time like this, if you can call it a blessing in disguise, I don't even want to call it that because it's far from a blessing, but at least what it should do is compel us to crystallize our values. So now is an opportunity to talk about what is right and what is wrong. This doesn't invalidate somebody's pain. It invalidates the way they're trying to remedy it. When I'm sitting and, let's say, counseling a couple, and one person has hurt the other in a deep way, and the spouse is reciprocating and hurting back, what I try to do is not invalidate. Of course, I understand you were hurt. 
and let's, let's make sure the spouse that hurt you is acknowledges it. But there are different ways to deal with it. You don't want to, fire, to fight fire with fire. Now, I understand people right away will say, so why is Israel going into Gaza? They're going to eradicate evil. This is not about revenge. This isn't about reciprocating. This is about a force that has created such tr- tremendous, tremendous brutal attack, killing so many people in the most brutal way. You must eliminate it. They should have eliminated it a long time ago and nip it in his bud. But now it's turned into a cancer. What do you do now? You have to deal with the cancer that's spread across the body. So just to make that clear. And even that, we're not talking about tit for that's not, we're talking about getting rid of the, the infection here. We're talking about getting rid of an evil. That is still till this day considered for many, they think they're celebrating it. When you hear some of the recordings and some of the way they talk about it, not maybe not everyone in public that celebrate, they're proud of it. Even now. Even when everybody else is condemning it. In their distorted mind, their religion feels that killing a Jew is fine. Doesn't matter whether it's a man, woman, or child. What we would call innocent, they say everyone's guilty. That's why it's so vital at a time like this to delineate boundaries and clarify, yes, there is such a thing as absolute good and absolute evil. There are many things that are subjective, including our interests and our biases and the way we justify things. So all of that has to be part of this conversation, and it's it, it, an excellent opportunity. Again, that's not the right word, because I don't, I don't want to use anything positive about what's going on. When I say excellent, I mean it's an opportunity to clarify for ourselves, for our children, there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong. And it's critical to teach our children that, and not teach the gray area. There are gray areas, but that too needs to be discerned, needs to be defined. But there are things that are not gray areas. Some things are just not acceptable. Your child goes to school, somebody hurts your child, do not start punching them in return. Don't start hurting them. Go report it, find someone, and so on. And I'm not talking about little petty things that children play or so on. I'm talking about something on a more serious level. It's a tremendous lesson in life to define, delineate our boundaries of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And the interesting thing is, it's the exact opposite. When people want to like justify and say, there's no real evil, everything is really good, you actually redeem the evil by defining it, because then you avoid it. When someone says to you, here's the path to go on, the path of life, and here's the path that will lead to the opposite of life, that becomes a blessing, because now you know what path not to travel on. So by blurring the boundaries... And saying, oh, everything is relative, you're actually creating death, destruction. It would be like the body saying, you know what, the food goes down your mouth, so it goes down the windpipe, who really cares? No, the pipes are meant to be two different pipes, the food pipe and the windpipe. And that's what allows them to work with each other. In other words, boundaries are actually healthy, because we live in a structured existence. Again, right and wrong. So having that clarity between the separating between darkness and light, and between right and wrong, between good and evil, is actually healthy for everything. And it also is healthy to know what is not to be done. May we not have to talk about these things. May we transform any negative into the positive. And there are ways to transform by taking the energy and using it to build, eradicating anything of the negative, and come to a world where there will be what we call 
that the spirit of toxicity, of toxins, will be removed from this earth and will be an earth filled with goodness and peace. No more famine and no more war. No more jealousy, no more avarice, no more of any of the negative things. A world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea, as Isaiah the prophet says, and therefore there'll be no more evil and destruction in this world. Amen. Thank you so much. This has been Simon Jacobson in these trying times talking about a topic very relevant. And please, I'd love to hear your feedback, your thoughts. Share, subscribe to our growing YouTube channel. And we have now a special section on MeaningfulLife.com forward slash War in Israel, which is constantly being populated with more content. And again, please, love to hear your feedback. May God protect all innocent men, women, and children all over the world, especially in the Holy Land. May God protect the soldiers that are fighting the cause of good over evil, wherever that evil may be, and wherever that good may be. And I'm not just speaking as a Jew, I'm speaking as a human being. May there be peace for all peoples, once and for all. And may the good ultimately dispel all the darkness. And as I said, usher in a world of personal and global redemption. Thank you. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com slash donate.